You're listening to the Lean Built Podcast. I'm Jay. And I'm Andrew. In this podcast, we discuss our manufacturing companies, lean principles, and the freedom that we're pursuing in life and business. So I need to buy insurance against disappointment and frustration. I'd file a claim on that policy every week and they would never pay. Disappointment insurance. Disappointment insurance. Disappointment insurance. Man, if the US Postal Service had disappointment insurance, the country would be bankrupt or would it? So we've changed insurance companies several times over the years. We're in the process of getting new coverage, currently updating our coverage. And it's one of those things where I sat down on Thursday of this past week and I read through again our entire 149 page insurance policy. And at the end of it, my eyes were bleeding and I did not understand any better really what was covered and what was not. It's such an extraordinary example of, I know what every single one of these words means and I have no idea what this sentence means. Yeah. It's lawyer speak at its finest, right? And you know what? So I I have a friend that's a lawyer that he says, here's the dirty underbelly of law is that contracts are written with specifics, but they do have certain ambiguity so that there's like wiggle room in them. You go, yeah, that's, I guess, what separates the first year l- lawyer from the 10-year lawyer, I suppose. Yeah. But The veteran lays landmines that you never see coming until you step on Of course. On them. Right. Yeah. So for us, we've mm-hmm. had a series of bad storms in the past week. Our power was out several times. It was actually out for most of the day today. And we had some pretty good size, probably baseball-sized hail hit our basically brand new solar array. So we lost a couple of panels. Amazingly, we didn't lose more. We lost less than 5% of our overall panels, which was awesome. But still, it's a loss. It's a pain. And the interesting thing is the panels that broke all broke in multiple places and the undamaged or visually uncracked panels have no injury to them. And it seems like each of the panels that failed got one really bad hail hit by like a baseball-sized hailstone. And then after that, after the panel was shattered, subsequent hits from smaller hailstones all also cracked the panel. So you can have a panel that's got 10 or 12 fractures in it, and all the panels adjacent to it appear to have no damage. Mm -hmm. It was really weird. We went out there like, all right, that panel is completely shattered end to end, but all the panels around it are untouched. And it just seems to be like it was the one or two major hits just like bulletproof glass. Like once a round goes through bulletproof glass, the ability of the remaining window to restrain rounds goes dramatically down. So in Star Wars terms, once the big gun takes down the shield, then all the little guns can damage the craft. Yeah, sort of. Yeah. Okay. Ion cannon time. Yeah. Okay. Wow. Total loss. If you have, what is it? How many panels do you have? 60. That's what I thought. 60. And how many do you have to replace? So far, we know we have to replace three, but we have to do a more thorough inspection with the solar installers because I want to make sure there's not damage that I can't see from the ground. We have a ground-mounted system, so it's not up on our roof. I was so grateful after the hailstorm that I did not have to get up on a ladder and get up on our roof to inspect panels. I could just walk around them on the ground. But I don't want to close the whole thing out until I have the solar install company come and audit our existing panels. Because three of them are obviously destroyed. Yeah. But there may be other minor damage that I'm not noticing. And because the panels are relatively far off the ground at the high end of the angled array, Mm -hmm. I want to have them look at it as well and make sure that I'm not missing anything. So when one of those panels gets destroyed, does it degrade the entire I think it's called an array or something like that. So the way ours is set up is there's a couple of different ways to wire in arrays. Ours have one inverter per four panels. So we went okay. with a modular array uh-huh. and those are wired in parallel, not in series. Got so if one panel goes out, unlike your old fashioned Christmas lights where one bulb goes dead and everything downstream shuts off. The way these are wired is if we have a bad panel, all the other undamaged panels on the other inverters run just fine. So our solar array is still putting out power. It's just not putting out all the power it's rated for. And we have to replace those panels. But that was actually one of the things we considered when we were shopping around for different companies to go with for the install 
was whether or not they'd put every panel in a series and one big inverter at the end, or whether mm-hmm. we'd have independent parallel cellular yeah. groupings of panels. So, so and it's big. It's bigger system than like micro inverters on each panel, right? I think they are technically called micro inverters, but there's one per four panels, and I think the panels are four by six foot. Wow. Oh, oh, all four put together. No, no, no. Per panel, each panel is four by six foot. Four panels in a quad. One micro inverter per set of four panels. Got it. Okay, man, those are big panels. Because I'm thinking of the panels that I've seen, I feel like they're only four feet tall. I've never heard of a four by six. So These are definitely so, not four by four. Okay. So let me ask you this. In the storm. Yep. Okay. So out here, we don't have hail. We don't have inclement weather here in California, but we do have what's called in my area, the Santa Ana winds that whip up 40, 50, 60 miles per hour at times in gusts. Yep. And so the panels here, they have to be firmly attached and they have to have the wind load ratings. Was that something you had to look into originally? I don't recall looking specifically into wind loads and Mm -hmm. ratings. We looked at a couple different companies and they had different approaches to how to anchor the structure that would hold the panels. And one company wanted to use basically big screw into the ground anchors. We actually wanted poured concrete and posts and that mm-hmm. was what we went with. But on Thursday night, the storm that came through had 80 mile, almost 90 mile an hour gusts in our area. Mm. And we didn't lose any panels. We actually did. We just recently had all the gutters on our building redone. And we did lose some of the new flashing mm. along the uh, the edge of one of our sections of the building. Mm-hmm. It didn't come all the way off, but it definitely pulled out some nails and popped the flashing up. So we've had a few things to go up on ladders for to check our roof, mm-hmm. and we've had the hail damage to the panels, but thankfully nothing got torn off. And the way that our building is situated on the property, we don't have any overhanging trees or anything that's at risk of falling on the building. Gotcha. So that's you know what's you know what's funny, Andrew. We're recording a few days after this storm. Did it hit like when we were supposed to be recording? I think that was the case. It did. So yeah, last Sunday. We had the big hailstorm that cracked our panels and did a bunch of damage. Like, we, it was a Sunday evening. We were not at the shop. My friend Ben owns a brewery five minutes west of my shop. And all of his employees and a number of his customers who were in the parking lot all had their windshields shattered out. Jeez. Because they were getting baseball sized hail. Yeah. And so Sunday night, we had all that damage. Monday morning, we came in. We, audited all the panels. We took photographs. We submitted the claim to insurance. And then Thursday, we had a heavy storm front blow through in the afternoon around 4 p.m., which is when we about when we were supposed to podcast. And it was a dark, angry wall cloud heading from west to east from Terre Haute across Spencer, Martinsville, Bloomington. And we lost power immediately when it got mm-hmm. to us. And I had several employees who, if they wanted to go home, would have to drive due west into the teeth of that storm. So we just shut the building down, turned all the machines off, locked all the doors. And as soon as the power went out, we went over to the break room and we popped open the freezer because I had a few quarts of ice cream in there. <laughs> and we sat in the break room with a battery powered emergency lamp and ate ice cream. That's great. And just hung out till the storm blew over. It was fast moving. It was a hard band of storms that passed over. And then Sunday night, today is Monday, July Mm -hmm. 3rd. Yesterday, we had another round of storms that came through and that knocked out our building power again. And it was out until about noon today. It's funny because I was thinking about how we had to postpone till today. And I thought, wow, gosh, we don't really lose power. We, We have a thing here in my area of California called PSPS. Public safety power shutoffs, which is mm-hmm. so annoying. When the Santa Ana's pick up, they will proactively turn off power because we have a lot of transformers and power lines that are decades old. That what happens is when they break or pop or whatever, they start wildfires, or so that is the public narrative. Mm-hmm. So they say if the power line falls and it hits a patch of leaves, because California is not swept up or done any of that, 
it won't start a fire. That's a better scenario than people going without power. Now, it's gotten to a fever pitch where people are like, this is about the third year that California has done this. And we're going, no, that's enough is enough. Stop turning off our power. So I don't know, maybe it's one of those things that they're pushing Californians to put more solar on roofs, which is fine. I'm, I would love to tell Southern California Edison to take a flying leap so I could be self-sufficient on my power. But I was thinking about like how we don't have to deal with power shutoffs or loss of power. And then Sunday night, I woke up at exactly 2.30 a.m. to an earthquake. And I'm going, there, that's what we deal with out here. Okay, so when I did my research, because it woke up my wife and I, and it was a 3.8. I know that probably means nothing to most people, but it would be like if you were in your car and three or four guys shook it. So you'd get a little rattled. It wouldn't create damage. That's probably a little too much. I'll tell you the front door of my house, we have a doorbell camera. And at 2.30 a.m., I replayed it. And it's like someone took the knob and shook the door as hard as possible. And there's you hear some of the, the sill and door frame creaking, stuff like that. Yeah. Nothing fell off our shelves. Nothing got damaged. The boys didn't wake up. Half the people I talked to in the morning didn't even know about it. It made news. I think it was a one-minute top of the newscast. And it was 18 miles underground off the coast of Malibu. We felt it here in Simi Valley. And then as YouTube continues to serve me earthquake videos, I came across a stat that, let's see, every year the state of California, which is giant by the way, has earthquakes over 4.0 five times a year. Now, a 4.0 earthquake doesn't do any damage. It might knock stuff over if you've got a glass right on the edge of your table or something on a shelf. But we're almost 30 years, like next January 17th will be 30 years since we had our major, major mega earthquake, the Northridge earthquake, which we're about, as a crow flies, maybe eight, 10 miles away from it. So you do. Yeah, we are due. Yeah. And the I mean, last one before that was in the 70s. So it was about 20 years. So we're about 10 years overdue. So when I was in grad school in Indiana, we had a 5.2. Okay. In so Indiana. You do, you do have it. Okay. Yeah. So that was extremely unusual. Sure. And my roommates and I woke up and we're like, what is happening? Yeah. This is Indiana. We get tornadoes, we get floods, we get mine subsidence and cars. <laughs> we sure. don't get earthquakes. Yeah. And that was in 2008, I think. So I've heard that fracking leads to these minor earthquakes. Have you heard that? I don't know anything about that. Okay. It somewhat lubricates the ground. And so these areas which have been dormant. I'm pretty sure that's because of the chemtrails. Anyway, oh, moving that on. that makes perfect sense. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no. So the frogs just, are shaking my house. Yes. I figure no matter where you live, because when we posted our YouTube series about our latest shot move, a decent percentage of the comments were like, wow, staying in California, crazy. And everyone loves to throw out the, oh, you guys have political unrest and what is the other crazy politicians and earthquakes, all of which are true. But we also have avocados in California. Oh, sure do. Sunshine year round. There's lots of pros. But I was trying to figure out how to respond to these. Most of them, it's just not worth responding. But it would be like saying, and I looked on a map, if you take the size of the state of California, it really stretches from Jacksonville, Florida to New Jersey. So if you're going to say that California has all these problems, you pretty much have to say, well, let's total up all the problems for the entire eastern side. Seaboard, yeah. (laughs) Eastern seaboard. So yeah, if storms aren't going to get you, there's always going to be something. There's always going to be something. The best business practices are to have good insurance in place. Like we have a stash of components that last us about a week to two weeks yep. so that if our facility goes down, we can still ship. And we have one yep. guy that works out of what we call our San Antonio office. It's his bedroom. We might <laughs> just have him. He's you know, the designated stash. survivor. He is. He totally is. So, you know, like the smaller orders that can keep our customers up and running, like gasket, some pallets, top plates, stuff like that. But all of our starter packages, systems, 
I think most customers would say, well, I can survive without this thing that I want, but when it comes to things I need, I'm sorry, Pearson, that's just not an excuse. Yeah. I remember ordering from a company in Florida that they had a hurricane hit and I'm like, yeah, I feel bad for you. But at the same time, I need my stuff. And you are in Florida. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So, and you knew that would happen because- Flip side is, did you ever watch any comedy from Mitch Hedberg? He is a comics comic. And his basic approach is lots and lots of short stories and Uh one-liners. And he describes, like, I walked by a dry cleaners at 3 a.m. And the sign on the door said, I'm sorry, we're closed. You don't have to be sorry. It's 3 a.m. and you are a dry cleaner. I am not going to stop by here at 10 o'clock in the morning and say, I was here at 3 a.m. and you were close. Someone owes me an apology. That is so good. It's so, he's, his delivery is so deadpan. Mitch Hedberg oh. is awesome. But the idea that the things that we can plausibly plan for, mm-hmm. we have an obligation to plan for. Yep. And that's insurance, that's spare equipment. Mm-hmm. Like, I have a vendor who shall remain nameless, that I have some pretty long outstanding POs that they are significantly behind on, that are a critical subcomponent for us for which we have had to seek other alternative products in the market Mm -hmm. because of the slow delivery. And they've had material delays. They relocated their company. That caused a bunch of problems. They've had equipment breakdowns for which they did not have the critical components. And it's like, okay, well, I am a brother CNC shop. We've got five brothers. Mm -hmm. I deliberately standardized for the same spindle across all five machines. We've got the standard non-big plus, non-dual contact, 16K cartridge spindle in all five machines. Do I have a spare spindle on the shelf? No, I don't actually, because that's like a $6,000 thing. And my Yamazan office is only two hours from here. Sure. Now, if all else failed, I've got two S700s, two R450s, and one R650. I basically have two of each of our main machines. The R650 is its own thing. And so if one of our 450s died, spindle junked out, had a terrible crash, I have a duplicate twin machine Mm -hmm. next to it. And I can just move the work over. Same work holding, same spindle, same everything. On our 700s, I've got two basically duplicate machines. A few slightly different options, but basically duplicate. And if I had a unique machine, if I had all these 16K non-dual contact, but I had one machine that was the 10K dual contact, high torque, and it's a unique machine. I have to have it running. I can't have it down. I would absolutely buy a spare spindle and put that on the shelf mm-hmm. because if that machine goes down and I can't move the work, I can't move the program mm-hmm. to any other machine in the shop without redoing the whole program, then I have to have a backup for it. Yeah. Probably well over 10 years ago, I used to, before I had lathes and a lathe operator, we would outsource most of our turning work. Well, all, yeah, all of our turning work. And I had a great supplier in the Midwest that had a Eurotech lathe. And it's kind of what we have now, the one and done dual spindle live tooling. Some components in the lathe went down. Eurotech is obviously a European machine. And they told him, sorry, the part is not in stock. It's slated for production in six months. But in the meantime, here's a drawing if you want to make the shaft or draw tube. I think it was something with the draw tube. You can make it yourself. He had to make it himself or at least a portion of it on a non-Eurotech machine to get his machine up and running. That's the downside. That was like his cornerstone machine in his shop. And it became his greatest asset, what became his biggest liability. And shortly after that, I, I sent him another PO and he said, sorry, Jay, I had to shut down my, my shop. I think it was stress-related. And also because that's what happens when you buy an off-brand machine and you mm-hmm. don't have good local support. I would love to have some of these machines I drool over on Instagram or YouTube, but gosh, you just can't beat Haas service. You can beat Haas machines, but you can't beat their service, at least in our area. 
And with our Doosans, same thing. Like the longest we've ever had to wait is two days for any type of service on either brand. Yep. So there's something to be said for stocking parts if you're not in an area that has good support. Yeah. And especially if you have a unique machine yeah. or a critical machine for which you do not have a twin. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Standardization. Like, so I would like to, we talked a while back about brothers and what is it called? The brother conveyor belt? Gosh, oh, sorry. Flex. Yeah. The flex too. Yeah. Geez. I would love to have that, but I would have one brother machine in my shop. And I really yeah. do. Like I'm a huge believer in standardization. So Well, all of our machines have the Brother C00 control, and Brother has released the D00 control, which is touchscreen and has a bunch of different menus and all this stuff. And our sales guy was actually in the shop this past week showing another potential client. Since we are a Yamazin client, we have a bunch of Brother machines, three different models. He asked if he could bring a potential customer around and show them our shop. Happy to do it. Totally fine. Give them a tour. Talk to Mm -hmm. them about the machines. But I don't actually want to add a D00 control machine unless I need it Mm -hmm. because the menus are different. The layout's different. It's a touchscreen. The soft keys are different. Tons of things that have become routine for me are similar, but not quite. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And unless you have an overwhelmingly compelling reason to jump forward to the new control, It's the same reason why I don't want to update to the newest version of Windows or the Mm -hmm. newest version of Mac OS every time they release a new OS. I want to work with something stable and reliable. Mm -hmm. That's so funny. I was going to reliability is like, it's life and death. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Or just reliability is one thing, but familiarity is a big deal. We had that problem, it was a soft problem. But when Haas in 2017 came out with what they call the next-gen control, which is standard now, but we had the old school, the original cold fire, which my model year 2000 mini mill up to my 2015 TM, something like that, yep, all functioned the same. So you've had almost two decades of familiarity. Yep. The keypad is the same, but the menus and how you navigate is different. Now we have one cold fire control because that's a 2016 machine and it's connected to our robot. It's the weird stepchild of machines in my shop because it has a 20 station umbrella tool changer instead of like a 30 station side mount. Yep. But, you know, the guys still know how to navigate it and the ones that don't, well, we'll just put you on one of the machines that you do. And hence, that's why it's the robot machine. Yep. So I don't know. I well, we, we do have one machine we're going to sell only because it has like their original twenty-four station side mount tool changer, and we don't use it a lot. I'm trying to think of doing something creative, like announcing it on YouTube, and to sweeten the deal, you get our rotovice, you get a rotary unit, you yeah. get a pro pallet system with a vacuum pallet. Yeah. What do you think of that idea? Well, so this is funny. We had a power outage today. The -hmm. employees were off. The shop was closed because of the power outage. But around lunchtime, it came back on. And so I came in and my production manager and my operations manager came in. And the three of us were here. And we were brainstorming, whiteboarding. We shipped a few retail orders. We did a bunch of different stuff. And we actually watched a 20-minute TED Talk from a British marketer named Rory Sutherland. And I've watched a bunch of his videos. I really like him. And he was talking about the difference between actual mechanical value and perceived value, psychological value versus mechanical value. Uh And what's really interesting to me about that whole thing is it connects to the way that I think about my shop and our machines and our products and how I demonstrate to people that they're getting their money's worth and more when they buy from us. So mm-hmm. uh, that also connects to this book, which I wanted to mention in our talk today. It's Relevant Selling by Janie Smith. I am part of a group called Vistage. I have a Vistage chapter locally that I go to for a monthly one-on-one and a monthly group meeting. And Janie came and did a presentation to our group, I think late fall 22. Mm. And I got a copy of her book and I've just finished it. 
but it has a ton of stuff in there about how you communicate to customers, how you deliver what's valuable to them. And that was a really interesting idea. The title of the book, Relevant Selling, is that if you have a distinctive thing that you excel at, but the customer doesn't value it, it's not a competitive advantage. Makes sense. And most of the book is about how companies fall into guessing on behalf of their customers about what the customers want mm-hmm. and what the customers value. And in an internet age, it's really easy to say, well, I send a follow-up email to all my customers and I ask them to rate us out of one to five stars. How do we do? But anytime the customer knows who's asking the question, their response is always going to be colored by whether they like you or not, whether they think they had a good experience or not, whether you sold the thing they really wanted or not. There's a really interesting inflection point between customer satisfaction surveys, which are normally low-tech, as short as possible, a few questions max, Mm -hmm. and a very coarse approach Mm -hmm. versus double-blind market studies administered by a professional research company where both the respondents and the test administrators do not know the company that commissioned the study. Those are two very opposite extremes of how you get feedback from your market segment. Mm -hmm. And understanding those differences and what your current company communications and marketing and feedback cycles are like changes how you understand communicating value to your customers. And so the question of like, hey, if I wanted to buy a CNC machine and I'm a customer of Pearson, if they list a CNC machine for sale and they say, our company, you know how we do things. We do our preventative maintenance. We don't run our machines too hard. Everything's lubricated and greased and cleaned on schedule. We don't do any weird soldering in the PCBs. We don't take everything off label. We run machines within constraints for reliability with a clear process. We can document the service calls of this machine back to the date we bought it from. And we'll throw in a rotovice, a pro pallet system, a vacuum chuck, and this other stuff. Mm-hmm. Those things have value. But if I were an absolute random person mm-hmm. who didn't know Pearson, that value prop doesn't connect. Yeah. It's because just another VF2. Yeah. It's just yeah. another VF2. Yeah. And so if you market it on your social channels with people who know you and have bought from you, do you know who Ken Rockwell is? He's a photographer. No. I'm, I am a mild glass geek, a, a photography geek. And Ken Rockwell has a website. He does tons of reviews of cameras and lenses and all kinds of stuff. And he's been doing that for a long time. And I've read tons of his reviews of camera bodies, of lenses, of all kinds of stuff. And what he said was, I will always buy a used camera from a surgeon and I will never buy a used camera from another professional photographer. That's so good. (laughs) Because he said, he said, a surgeon will take impeccable care of their camera but they don't shoot photos that often. So the outside will be clean and the interior will be impeccable. Mm -hmm. Professional photographer tries to take good care of their camera, but they absolutely shoot the guts out of it. And if you buy a used camera from a legit pro photographer, the outside can look fine, and the inside has 400,000 miles on it and right. it's falling apart. <laughs> right. Absolutely. And that analogy of anytime I find a used camera I want for sale, if the person selling it is a doctor, especially if they're a surgeon, buy. Yeah. No questions. <laughs> <laughs> well, you took the words right out of my mouth because I do know that we're at an advantage of having a decent following on social media and just saying, look, you've seen our shop, you've seen video upon video on video of, of how we, we do, do how we do things of probably half the machines that have been delivered. And so, yeah, this one, it is a 20, I think it's 2018 or 19 
and it's just the one unused machine. And I go, yeah, we could do things, just flip it on eBay, but we could do something better for ourselves. We could do something better for the industry. So if someone really wants a deal, here's that, the great deal. That's the Rory Sutherland question of what part of the value is psychological value versus mechanical value? Right. Yeah. And it's like buying cars. It's like buying guitars. Mm-hmm. Like I have bought guitars that looked rough, but I had the opportunity to pop the cover plate off and say, okay, the wiring inside is pristine. Mm-hmm. It's factory. The solder joints are clean. Nobody has gone in there and monkeyed around with all this stuff. The pickups are original. The fret job's original. The finish on the body's a little bit beat up, but I don't care. Yeah. It's a player's guitar. It's a driver's car. I'm into this. So that's not a great example because people pay big bucks for beat up guitars. Well, <laughs> they pay big be- they pay big bucks for professionally players guitar, but they yeah. don't necessarily pay big bucks for something that somebody has jacked mm-hmm. around with the wiring inside of. Or neglected or those, yeah. Unless yeah. if you have a guitar that Elvis Presley soldered yeah. on his bedroom, on a mattress in the bedroom of a yeah. hotel while he was on tour and he knowing nothing about soldering, messed around with this thing. Yeah, absolutely. Sure. Million bucks, no question. But for me, as a person who has built guitars and repaired guitars and played a lot of guitars, what I want to see when I look at a guitar is that it hasn't obviously been molested by a person who didn't know what they were doing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And there are certain people that I know that I've known for a long time where they could send me a text or call me and say, hey, I've got a great 1982 Strat that I have to unload. These are the specs. This is the bridge. This is the tailpiece. These are the pickups. It's in good shape. I'm asking this much. And I would buy the guitar sight unseen Mm -hmm. because I know that person. And I've seen their guitars. I've seen how they play. I've handled their work. And I know this person is always conscientious. They always do good wiring. They always ground everything. They know how to do good work. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And hey, you build that reputation in a micro community, but it's super valuable. Yeah, sure. Let's workshop this. So if I do want to sell this machine, I don't want to go through eBay because okay. then it's open to the public. I really kind of want to auction it off privately and avoid these crazy costs associated with selling a machine on eBay. Do you know anything offhand? How would I go about doing this? That's what I'm wondering. So to back up, yeah, the machine is a VF2. It's a VF2. Mm-hmm. VF2 2016. I think it's a, no, it's a, it's newer. It's tw- 2018. I'm going to say. Okay. Yeah. It's a 2018 VF2. Any other mods or unusual specs? No. Mm-mm. Let me think. It has a HRT 160 rotary unit. Okay. What else? doesn't have a probe because we just don't need a probe in that machine. It's pretty much a vanilla machine. Side mount tool changer, 24 tools, like I said. Yeah, it's pretty straightforward. If I were selling that machine, I would not necessarily assume that the buyer wants a particular spread of work holding. Mm -hmm. But I would say, here's the base machine. Here are its features. And... We will configure it for you with either a rotovice, pro pallet system, two mini pallet systems, mm-hmm. some combination of the things that we make that you want yeah. that are uniquely suited to what you want to do with the machine. Mm-hmm. And I would try to roughly approximate the value of those different possible packages. Sure. But say, hey, this is the base price on the machine. We're willing to throw in up to X dollars worth of tooling and fixturing. And it could even include legitimately customization. You buy this machine with this and a vacuum pallet system, and we will work with you to design the vacuum pallet top Mm -hmm. with gaskets and everything, all machine custom for your project for this. Yeah. But I'm not actually sure why I would sell it. 
Yeah, the mechanics of selling it. Oh, man. Yeah, I don't want to go with like eBay. I don't want to go with the machine dealer. I just want to sell it direct. Well, I actually did sell my last 2013 Haas on Instagram. That was easy. That was really easy. You know what? I actually had the community jump in on that one. One guy said, hey, if anyone is thinking of getting a Tormach, this is the machine to get instead. Because it was close enough, the price point was, yeah, yeah, it was great. And it's because it was in a Pearson shop. Yeah. Take care of her stuff. So, yeah. Hmm. I would have no concerns personally about selling any of my machines and saying, this is a low mileage, well-maintained, pristinely Mm -hmm. clean, never abused brother. And I expect to get the high end of the used market value out of this because I know how it was taken care of. And if you know me, you know how it was taken care yeah, of. Yeah, that's right. I sold my Toyota Tacoma, such a great truck. I wish I had it back, kind of. But <laughs> when I sold it, the guy said, blue book on this is, I think it was like 12,000 or 13,000. And I was listing it for 17,5. And he said, the high end of blue book is this number. Can we just meet in the middle? And I said, no. Because Blue Book and what the market is dictating are two different things. And these sell in the seventeen dollars to $20,000 range. I want you to look at it. I want you to drive it. I have all the records. Let me know because the phone rings every 30 minutes. And it was. All that was true. He said, hey, I'm willing to give you your price if I can have a mechanic come out. Great. Mechanic totally. came out. The mechanic's like dude, buy this right now. If you don't buy that, I'll find someone to buy it. <laughs> and I sold it. The insider information on that is I got 17,000 for it. That's what we met at. I bought it four years earlier for 17,5. So for me, that was such a win. dollars for a truck for four years. For four years. And this was not in 2020. This was like 2018. So it's not pandemic pricing or anything like that. Yep. Because the money, Dave Ramsey, statement here. The money is made at the buy, not at the sell. And Hmm. I bought it from a dealership, a Subaru dealership who had it parked around the back in a corner and it was dusty and they do not, Subaru does not want trucks on their lot. And it was a guy that just came and traded it and they just wanted it gone. And I beat the crap out of those, that dealership because I dislike dealerships to a T. And every time I get a great deal, I think of all the the buyers that got hoodwinked. And mm-hmm. here's one for you guys. I really stuck it to them on your behalf anonymously. So, yeah. speaking yeah. of dealerships, yeah, I took my new orange Audi, new to uh, me, yeah. orange Audi, into the dealership this past okay. week because there's a recommended 40,000 mile or four year service. And the car was new to me, it has 22,000 miles on it. And I really wanted to start my time owning this car with a clean bill of health, Mm -hmm. which meant new spark plugs, new brake fluid, new transmission fluid, new oil, a brake check, and a comprehensive inspection. Mm -hmm. And there are two shops in my area that do work on Audis. And one of them is the dealer. And the other is a company that specializes in import cars. And I'm perfectly happy to go to the import car garage for subsequent routine oil changes, but to put a benchmark on the record of on this date at this time, a few weeks after I bought the car, I took it to the dealership in this area and had them inspect every single one of these parts and replace all these fluids and the plugs. And they signed off and gave the car a clean bill Mm. of health. That's great for me. And I'll, of course, maintain the records of tire replacement, alignment and rotation, oil changes, all that stuff from here on out. And that doesn't have to be at the dealer and it probably won't be. Yeah. But the idea of saying, I've got this car at a point in time, I want to mark its condition right here and say from here forward, everything else is on me. But at this point, it was good. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Gosh, doesn't that feel good? It does feel good. I- I don't remember if I mentioned it last episode, but I bought this car on a rebuilt title. It was totaled out for hail damage. Mm-hmm. 
And I've been driving hail damaged cars for years. There's a small independent dealership near me that specializes in rebuilding hail damaged cars. And it's so fun because I've got this bright orange Audi <laughs> and it is gently dappled with hail dings over the entire body. Uh huh. And I have no interest at all in trying to pull those dents out. Well, that's like synonymous with living in your area, right? Well, Indiana has a decent amount of hail, but the hail recently has been unusually heavy. Okay. Most of the cars that these guys sell locally are bought from places like Texas. My oh, previous car was a Honda Civic, and it looked like somebody had stood on the hood and sledgehammered the entire car. It, it obviously got hit by softball-sized hail, and it was yeah. out of Texas. Okay. And I'm not sentimental about cars, particularly. I know a lot of guys are gearheads, and mm -hmm. I'm not. Yeah. Up to this point, the Audi is the first fun car I've ever owned. Mm -hmm. I learned to drive on an 87 Toyota Corolla and then 86, a Suburban that we mm -hmm. bought. My parents bought secondhand from a school district. So it had running boards. It was painted bright yellow and it beeped when you put it into reverse. I had to learn to parallel park with that thing. No and pressure. then I didn't own a car and again until I was almost done with college. I bought a Jeep Cherokee. And then I got married and my wife had a Toyota Corolla she bought from her parents for a dollar. I drove that for years. And then I bought a Honda Civic that was hail damaged beyond belief. And now I have an Audi. And so my entire history of car ownership has always been extreme utility vehicles, a very used Jeep Cherokee, a surplus school district suburban, yeah, or things that we just had or could buy with hail damage. It's really relieving to not have the pressure. Like if I owned a $100,000 car that was in great condition and I parked it in my driveway and one of my kids came rip sticking along the sidewalk and yeah. crashed into the side of my car and dented it, yeah, I'd be upset. Of course. Yeah. But if my car has dents all over it already, mm -hmm. eh, yeah, it's fine. There's a business principle here because the way you buy cars is the way that I buy computers. Oh, I, I go to the Dell outlet, refurbished outlet.dell.com and I have never had a problem with a refurbished computer. I have. Really? Okay. I've had like, you're getting a scratch and dent model, but mm -hmm. my reasoning is that it had a problem. It's been fixed. Now it's better than new. Theoretically. And it's discounted. And so, so, so like the last set of shop computers we bought, they're regularly priced about $1,600. Yep. I7s or I9s, bunch of memory the SSDs. And we got them for about a thousand bucks each. Yeah. That's solid. Yeah. So we have a couple of Dell Precision laptops in the shop and we bought them all refurbished. And there's one that drives me absolutely crazy because it was refurbished because it had display problems mm -hmm. and it will not go to sleep properly and you cannot adjust the display brightness. Okay. So I missed the boat. I should have bought it, tested it out and returned it immediately. Yeah. I didn't. I'm out of warranty on it, whatever. I have it. I can't return it. It is what it is. Yeah. But this computer is like Chucky. I put it to sleep. I leave the room. I come back five hours later and it's awake. <laughs> and I'm like, I put you to sleep. Yeah. We have not had an earthquake. The mouse has not moved. Why are you up? Yeah. And the screen is harshly bright. Okay. Because you can turn the contrast up, you can turn the contrast down, brightness, whatever, and the screen doesn't change. Is, Something is, is still wrong there. Is, is this an all-in-one or is it a desktop unit? What is it's it? A Mac, it's a laptop. Oh, okay. Got it. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Well, look at it this way. I bought an HP and I bought a Lenovo because I thought, boy, I've been on this Dell bandwagon for a long time. Mm -hmm. Let me just try other brands. Two of the worst 
laptops I've ever bought. Like <laughs> we've relegated the Lenovo to our laser engraver machine because it's got this cheap hack. What is it called? The easy CAD Chinese version of software that has, it's the worst piece of software, but it came with a $3,000 fiber laser. We won't connect it to the internet because we don't know what it's going to do to our network. <laughs> so it served a purpose. The, the screen literally goes black out of nowhere. But as long as we can just reboot it and hit F1 or F2 to mark part or yep. marks part, as it says, it works. And it, we mark maybe once every two to three weeks. Perfect. Yeah. Terrible laptop, terrible laser. We just need to keep it alive for 45 minutes on a Tuesday afternoon. I definitely relegated the Dell that won't sleep to our laser cutting cell because okay. there it's constantly plugged in because with the screen brightness mm -hmm. turned all the way up, that thing absolutely chews through battery. Oh, interesting. And yeah. if we had to have it as a laptop on a mobile station, it'd be dead every day. Sure. And yeah. so we just park it at the laser station. It's plugged in USB and power and mm. it's good. Yep. But whenever I'm shutting down the shop, I walk through the whole building. This is potentially a whole separate episode, which is as a shop owner, how do you relate to your physical property, security systems, door locks, key access, fire alarms, carbon monoxide alarms, all mm. those things. But I walk around my entire building and I check doors before I leave. Mm -hmm. That's not necessarily reasonable, but that's what I do. And some of those doors can be deadbolted from the inside. And some of those doors are keyed, locked, or unlocked for regular access from the outside in normal operation. So all the doors that are deadbolted, I check from the inside. And all the doors that are keyed access, I check from the outside as I'm leaving for the day. And... It's one of these weird things where I go back into a certain part of the building and I look across the room and there's that laptop mm. wide awake. Looking at you. Looking at me, screen bright as anything. Yeah. And I walk over and put it to sleep. And five minutes later, I walk through again and it's back on. <laughs> and I'm like, ah. oh, man. When so you far. Close, when you close the lid, what does that do? I think the display stays on and the laptop gets really hot. So I okay. keep it open, but I have not yet walked into that bay and had the laptop enunciate, come play with us. Yeah. Right. So if it ever does that, yeah, it's going straight out onto the loading dock and it's getting a sledgehammer. I missed you, Andrew. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I watched your child sleep last night, man. Hey, you know, this Lenovo, I wanted to make a video about holding it with a vacuum and drilling and machining the guts out of it. I actually did a video one time of me machining a bag of tortilla chips okay. with a face mill. <laughs> and it's like, I need to open my chips. And I put them in a vise and cranked it down and then just like wrap it at a brother over and just four inch face milled uh, all the way across the top of the bag, like cut the chips, just Dude, is this everywhere. live somewhere? Where'd you post it? It, it was on Instagram years okay. ago. Okay. It was That's super fun. <laughs> but yeah, the idea of taking a malfunctioning, malevolent piece yes. of technology yes, and saying, I don't care. I still might do it because with this Chinese laser, I can't say it's garbage. I thought it was going to be garbage. It still engraves. It's still doing a good job. Software's horrific. The translation is ridiculously funny. But that laptop, if we ever go to a different laptop. Now, okay, this laptop was a 2012. So in 10 plus years, even a poor, poorly specced, slow laptop is probably faster than this i7. Let's see, passmark.com. I could probably type in some processor names and see what the uh, a comparable thing. But if that comes... Oh, here's what I'll do. The VF2 that I'm about to sell, that's the machine it goes in. Because I didn't want like circuit board stuff 
on the inside. That was one of the concerns. I don't want to junk up one of my VF2s. I will use an old vacuum chuck that we're going to scrap out. I will hold it upside down so it holds on the screen lid and -hmm. I will tape it and I will machine it from the bottom out. Remove the lithium battery or not and just go to town on it and see what happens there. It's a win all the way around. That'll get 20, 30, 40,000 views. No, that'll get 100,000 views. If it were me, I would pull the battery and I would put a good carbide drill in and drill 50 thou standover. Yeah. It's like hole on hole on hole on hole on hole. And I would Swiss cheese that thing Mm. into a sacrificial, maybe not a vacuum. But just a sacrificial subplate and just edge clamp it, like pit bullet, muddy bite yep. it, whatever. And then just absolutely Swiss cheese that machine. Are you familiar with the adaptive toolpath? Adaptive. Yeah. yeah. That's what I was thinking of doing on the inside because I want stuff to fly, debris. Oh, okay. Yeah. I just want to take like a quarter inch carbide drill and just go and just punch it full of holes. We could do that, but I want to see shrapnel. It's really what I'm looking to get out of this exercise. Well, it's your machine, man. It's your laptop. Maybe adapt to that girl. Just go to town. Face mill the bottom off so we can see green circuit board. (laughs) Drill the perimeter and adaptive Uh, clear the inside. So if you're going to vacuum work, hold it. Yeah. You can't compromise the hinge. Yeah. That's Otherwise why it all take, flies apart. Yeah. No, that's the thing. I'd have to, maybe we could super glue it shut. You know, it would be awesome. Huh? Cast the entire thing in a clear block of epoxy resin. Yep. And then just go to town. Yeah. We've got epoxy. We're playing around with some surfaces. Yeah. Some I mean, surfaces. just yeah. put it down. Yeah. Create a border, mix your two-part epoxy, pour it in, let it set. And then you've got like a three-inch by whatever the laptop's footprint is, chunk. Right. And you can vacuum hold the bottom of that and the laptop's suspended up in it. I put spacers under it. I see what you're saying. Suspended up in the epoxy. Yeah. And then just go absolutely nuts. Okay. All right. So I would watch that video. Let me think what... What would be the big criticism on YouTube? Okay. Remember our buddy, John Saunders, when he machined food for Thanksgiving? Yeah. I loved it. I'm going to think that you loved it too, but he got lots of like pushback, which surprised me like waste of food. I would never do that to my machine. First of all, I think he said it was like expired food. Second, it's his machine. He can do what he wants with it. What would be the pushback in this scenario? What am I not thinking through? So- I think you'd get two layers of pushback on that. The first one is concerns about environmental contamination. Sure. Metals, batteries, whatever. And the second one is anytime you gratuitously destroy something that somebody could have used, Mm -hmm. it's wasteful. And I'm not usable. But at the same time, it's like, do you know how much stuff? Totally. Gets thrown Local away. governments put in the trash. Oh, gosh. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good point. Hmm. And so what's funny to me, are you familiar with Mr. Beast? Yeah, of course. Okay. I can't stand Mr. Beast. Okay. And I particularly can't stand how every thumbnail for every one of his videos is him with this goofy, slack-jawed, mouth-open, bright white teeth, <laughs> smile going, I made a thousand blind people see. Yeah. And it's like, I went to a car dealership and bought all the cars and then gave them away. You're like, you are just, you're not doing that because you're a good person. Uh-huh. You're doing that because your sponsors will underwrite you doing that and it costs you nothing. Yeah. Right. And that idea that anything that costs you nothing to do, yeah, fundamentally isn't of value. Value. Yep. Yeah. So it's gross the way that mass market media has allowed people to become 
incredibly widely viewed mm -hmm. by simply arbitraging mm -hmm. sponsors' money into trashing things. Like we put five billion Orbeez into a giant tank and then hired a helicopter to drop a car into it. And you're like, yes. that's so so okay. completely yeah. worthless. So I've already spent my own money on this piece of junk laptop. Yep. I would not sell this or donate it to a third world country mm -hmm. for students. It is a continual point of frustration mm -hmm. that I'm not in the same ballpark as Mr. Beast. No, all those are valid, relevant concerns. But what Mr. Beast has is an extraordinary level of gratuitous waste and consumption. Yeah, there you go. There you go. This is not gratuitous. It's not like, gross amounts of waste. Yeah. Mr. Beast is like, I ate gold leaf covered ice cream, $100,000 for a bowl of ice cream. I ate it. And it's like, right. <laughs> right. who cares? Yeah, exactly. Okay. I'll do it. I'm going to do it. Well, I really like the idea of betting it in a clear block of epoxy. Mm -hmm. So the laptop is floated in the air and you can mill it and you can just work hold the epoxy and not worry about the laptop. Yeah. But that opens up more options because I was going to hold it upside down on like mm -hmm. a non-louvered surface with a vacuum. Yeah. I would still machine it closed, uh -huh. but I might machine it in a clear block of epoxy in normal orientation, just offset with spacers by yeah. a half inch. Yeah. Last thing, then we'll move on. Laptop fully open, 180 degrees, bottom Closed. half in epoxy. So it gets a good purchase on it. And then keys are exposed, screens are exposed, because I still want like good shrapnel. I think if you machined it closed and you let the epoxy really flow into everything so it is suspended like in an ice block and yeah. you come in the middle with a chip breaking three quarter inch end mill. Uh huh. And you rough that dude out. Yeah. I think you'll get all the satisfying shrapnel you want. That's interesting. Okay. All right. I'm going to create, this is what I'm going to do because I'm sick of making micro decisions these days. <laughs> I'm going to create a Google survey and I'm okay. going to present it to the guys in the shop and then see what they say. Oh, what do you mean by micro decision? Ooh, that's okay. So, okay. Let's go back to 2018. The last time I moved my shop. I moved from, and it was about a hundred yards down the street, roughly doubled capacity. That was on a Friday afternoon, Friday all day. The next morning, we were moving our house on a Saturday morning. So back to back, mega life changing moves. Like Masochist. from Monday morning to Monday morning, my life and my work looked totally different. So that is actually the common response for me. It just felt like another week. Because we had a plan. I delegated like crazy. We hired movers. This is the first time in our life my wife and I hired movers to come do everything. They knocked it out in like four hours. It was actually a activity surrounding delegation yeah. and planning. So I'm like, this is easy. So when we moved in 2021, that was pretty straightforward. But what exhausted me there was so sick of it was because our current shop was literally a blank canvas of concrete. The mm -hmm. story backstory there, it, it was a cheerleading training facility. So they had gymnastic mats everywhere and plugs, hardly any plugs, but they were the standard plugs when the contractor built it originally in 2005. And so it was a blank canvas. There was one row or two rows of lights only 110 plugs. I had to make decisions about where every plug went, every airdrop, every run of ethernet. It was the plethora of micro decisions. Cause I wanted to say, oh, you know what? Just put a plug, plug, plug there. Wait a minute. That plug might drop down and be right above the spindle. Nope. It's got to be four feet to the left or right. All those little things, paint color, paint sheen, all that stuff. What should we clean? What should we not clean? Gauge of wire size of conduit. It just was mentally exhausting, all those micro decisions. Yep. That's why I have probably like 10 Pearson workholding shirts that I just grab them off the top of my stack 
and I wash them a couple ever, or my wife washes them or whoever washes them, my kids wash them. Whoever. Every two or three <laughs> weeks. What's that? <laughs> whoever washes whoever. them, just some random person washes my clothes. Or not. And I just throw on and I don't have to make that decision. So I just thought I had stumbled across one of the greatest things. And my buddy said, that's why Steve Jobs wore black turtlenecks and blue jeans his entire career. Yep. He's minimizing those decisions. So what do you have for breakfast? Well, I don't eat breakfast. I do intermittent fasting. Okay. But for lunch and dinner, I use a meal delivery service called Zen Nutrition. They're out here on the West Coast. And what shows up is what shows up. I can go in and tweak the menu, but I'll eat anything. So what shows up, that's what I'm going to eat. It's one more decision that I don't have to make. Hmm. Did I tell you last time that my director of finance said, you're the most consistent eater I've ever seen? When you go to Baja Fresh, it's 13 and change. When you go to the sushi place, it's 16 and change. When you go to Chili's, it's 22 and change. <laughs> it's like the same number. I'm like, yeah, because I found something I like. I don't even want to try something different. Even if I try something different, it doesn't matter. I'm going to crap it out in eight hours. That's just my approach to food. So I don't <laughs> want to make more decisions on the things that will turn into poop. Well, so I get up early a couple mornings a week around 4.45 to go and do jujitsu. Right. And by 7.30, I've been up for a couple hours mm -hmm. and I've burned a bunch of calories and I need to get some calories into me. So I am a creature of habit. Basically seven days a week, I eat four scrambled eggs for breakfast. Mm -hmm. No toast, no anything else. Sometimes cheese on top of the eggs, sometimes hot sauce, sometimes crumbled bacon, depending on what else we have in the fridge. But just scrambled eggs every morning, every day. Mm -hmm. And that and a cup of coffee have been a really reliable, easy, I don't have to think about it. Yeah. Not cereal, not toast, not whatever. Just yeah. every morning, scrambled eggs. Standard. Not over easy. Love it. Not sunny side up. I don't make omelets. I'm not interested. Scrambled eggs. Yeah. And that is really freeing. And the more I took my, two of my sisters were in town this past week visiting along with five nieces and nephews. So this past week we had four adults and 10 kids under 13 staying in my house, including my wife and our family and my sister and her kids and my other sister. It was very, very busy, extremely yeah. fun. Yeah. But I took my two sisters out to dinner on Friday night. And we went to a restaurant that my wife and I have been to a number of times. And the waiter came and was like, here's your menu. And I was like, yeah, I don't need that. Yeah, right. I want this. I want this drink. I want this food. I want this side. I want that. Done. Yeah. Just completely cold. Yeah. No, no question of looking over the menu. Just, I know what I like. I've been here before. This is what I want. That's <laughs> so good. So there, we had a Thai restaurant nearby and I would go there two, three times a week. It's before I really started eating healthy. But it got to the point where I would call, they would pick up the phone and the guy, Knew who he would were. say, hey, Jay, see you in 12 minutes. Thanks, <laughs> bud. And I would just show up and there's my Kaikua with the, all the side things and that was it and my chai iced tea. And it was the same thing. I should have just given him my card. That's really what I should have done. Like, Keep it on file. Just have it ready on Tuesdays and Fridays. <laughs> yeah. It's good to actually be a regular some places. Yeah. So did we talk about, okay, there's a restaurant out here. It's a chain. There's probably like 30 or 40 called Sharky's. I don't know if that's a national chain. Haven't heard of it. Okay. Yeah. So it's like kind of like a, it's better than Tex-Mex, but it's Mexican food with an American flair. And like they have Mexican style pizzas, which are great. Like Taco Bell's. What is it? Don't they have a Mexican pizza? Something like that? I don't go into Taco Bell. Good for you. Neither do I. Just testing. Yeah. And so I walk in, the managers know me. Oh, hey. And I now these days I'll order online. So I eliminate the waste of waiting. I walk in, they see me come in. There's a line. The manager will check the next person out, grab my bag, walk past the people in line, hand it to me. Thanks, Miguel. Appreciate it. See you next time. See you, Jay. Like, I love that. And that is because of routine and those micro decisions that I don't have to make anymore. In fact, Sharky's the app, 
I just tap my favorite and it adds all the items, even if we're ordering dinner for the family. Hey kids, you're getting a chicken and cheese roll up. Wife, you're getting a salmon power plate with yams and broccoli. And she's like, yep, it's fine with me. And it's just so easy. (laughs) (laughs) Oh gosh. Uh, Yeah. We're not far from Rain Man territory. Dude, I know. I've thought about that. (laughs) I realize I need to do like a spectral analysis of where I'm at in society. But I honestly do think it's just like, I'm so over all those micro decisions. They're just not, they don't add value. I remember thinking, I've talked to John Saunders a number of times about Mm decision-making and the idea that you essentially, like a muscle, you have a certain number of decisions, a number of reps you can realistically make in a day. Mm -hmm. And no matter how much willpower you apply, you simply can't do more. You have an upper limit. And with time and training and exercise and all those things, you can increase it, but you have a limit. Mm -hmm. And the idea that it's normal and reasonable when that decision-making muscle is tired out to just say, I'm not making any more decisions today. Mm -hmm. And to front load the critical decisions you know you have to make Mm -hmm. early in the day when that muscle is as fresh as possible so that you're not at 7.45 at night, exhausted, hungry, trying to make a thorny micro decision. Yeah. It's so valuable. I love that. You know who gave me, not personally, but gave me a, I didn't feel, and vindicated is the wrong word, but just a, a permission affirmed in my approach was I saw an interview with Jeff Bezos they asked mm-hmm. him what his morning routine looks like because there's lots of like cold baths. There's all these things. He said, well, the first thing I do is I prioritize sleep, which I do too. I've told you before, I don't use an alarm clock. And then you know, I get started because my goal each day is to make two to three high value key decisions and that's it. And I go, yeah, I feel like at this point in my career and business, that's what I need to do. I need to come in and make the decisions that no one else has, A, the total big picture of all the information, B, maybe scared to make, rightfully so, and C, doesn't have the authority to see that decision come to fruition. That's what I need to do. And it has been like, I feel like I've really gotten way farther ahead in my company when I do that rather than inundate myself with all these micro decisions that just suck the life out of not just me, but people in general. Speaking of micro decisions, the question of what to have for dinner tonight. Hmm. You know, I'm going to have whatever my wife made. I love it. I don't care. Yeah. That's great. There are certain things I care about. Yeah. And there are other things that I care to not care about. Yeah. It's great. It's liberating, isn't it? We should talk more at some point about the book, Relevant Selling. There's a bunch of things in here that I found really helpful. Okay. And I will probably excerpt a few sections and either send you some quotes or read some sections in the next podcast. But it has a lot to do with how I think that combined with Rory Sutherland and his idea of psychological value Mm -hmm. has given me a lot of stuff to chew on in terms of how I understand what things my customers care about what things prospective customers care about, what things our company does at a higher level than our competitors, and how we connect those and show our prospective customers that we excel in the things that they care most about. Love it. So That's great. That'll be next time. Sounds good. Thank you, Jay. Thanks, Andrew. Have a great day. Mm